Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Nicholas Christakis. Nicholas is a physician, a sociologist, and a professor at Yale University. He'll be known to some of you as the professor who kept his composure in front of a mob of students screaming about Halloween costumes back in 2015. Or he may be known to you as the author of many books, including Connected, The Surprising Power of Our Social Networks and How They Shape Our Lives, Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society, and the focal point of our conversation today, Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. Nicholas and I talk about how the polarized media has harmed our ability to deal with COVID. We talk about the end goal of herd immunity. We talk about whether the incredible speed of the rollout of the vaccine is suspicious. We talk about the ethics of requiring or strongly pressuring people to get the vaccine. We talk about the ethics of encouraging booster shots when many around the world have yet to get their first vaccination. We discuss ivermectin and much more. So without further ado, Nicholas Christakis. Okay, Nicholas Christakis, thanks so much for coming on my show. Oman, it's really great to see you face to face. Call me Nicholas, of course. Yeah, I've, I've known about you for a long time, and I think most listeners to this podcast will know who you are, not only from the, um, the, the news event you were a part of some, I don't know, six years ago, but from your many appearances on other big podcasts and your, your many books and, and so forth. So for the, on the off chance that someone listening doesn't know who you are, can you give a, a really brief summary of who you are and how you came to, to this point in your career, what your interests are and so forth? I'm a physician and a sociologist. I'm a professor at Yale. I run a lab called the Human Nature Lab that has about 20 people working in it, many young people, very proud of the work that the lab does. And I also co-direct the Yale Institute for Network Science. Uh, my lab does a whole bunch of stuff. We study the deep evolutionary origins of human friendship, We study social robotics and artificial intelligence. We study the physiology and evolutionary biology of human social interactions, including things like the microbiome. We do experiments online to try to see, can we get people to work together better? Can we enhance the coordination of of groups, the cooperation of groups, the communication of groups? Can we reduce the spread of misinformation or of racism online. We, we do a whole bunch of different things in my, in my research group. And I don't know what else to tell you about my biography. I was a hospice doctor for many years, but I stopped seeing patients about 15 years ago now. And I've done a bunch of other things in my life. It's really interesting to me that you're a physician on the one hand, but also you know, a sociologist. Like that, that mix is really rare to me. Like you're working on 
things that have directly to do with medicine, but things that have to do with just getting human beings to work together better. And did you parallel path those two parts of your career or did you just start out as a physician and then become interested in other topics? I could give you a very short answer. If you give me three or four minutes to tell you that part of the biography, I'm not sure. I don't know what you, how much, how much do you want? I mean, I mean, the, 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 the background is just, I guess I'll just tell you the story. Sure, is, yeah. uh, I grew up in, a, in an immigrant family. My parents immigrated from Greece, but both my parents trained in the sciences. My, my father was a nuclear physicist and my mother was a physical chemist. Uh, my mother got sick when I was young, very sick, and then died when I was 25. So she was diagnosed when I was sick, when I was six. And I grew up my whole life with a terminally ill parent. And mm-hmm. Like many kids without experience, it sort of shaped my career aspirations. And so I you know, wanted to be a doctor from a young age. And when I went to medical school, uh, when I went to college, actually in 1979, I, I, what, I, what I wanted to do was study linguistics. I was really interested in actually in semiotics, in uh, symbols. And, but I was afraid. I didn't have the bravery to pursue that. I thought that would not be seen as as a good choice to prepare me for medical school or to get me admitted to medical school. I was wrong, but that was how I felt. And so I switched to biology instead. And then I got to Harvard Medical School in 1984. And I, um, when I arrived, I wanted to be a, a reconstructive surgeon. I wanted to reattach severed extremities. And I spent a lot of time, the first year I was in medical school, I met a plastic surgeon, a man by the name of John Mulliken, who I much admired. And I used to skip class all the time and go operate with him. And I won't go into the stories now, but I had just unbelievable experiences of operating on, on very complex injuries. And I was something called, I was first assisting, which is like, I was his right hand because at the time there were weren't other people that were interested in operating with him, which was unbelievable. Anyway, I had these incredible experiences where we would, we would make incisions and people would be born with uh, craniofacial abnormalities and we would make an incision from ear to ear and peel their face down and like cut their orbits out and swing the orbits together and wire them and reshape their faces to correct these facial abnormalities. And I was like right there watching what was happening. Anyway, after a while of skipping class to do that, it became very clear to me that I wasn't cut out to be a surgeon for various reasons, including that I didn't like to get up early. And I also didn't like hierarchy that much. And so I decided to instead do internal medicine, but I became aware of the fact that that if I wanted to be a researcher, I needed additional training. I needed to somehow get a PhD in something. And right around that time, my mother finally went into the terminal phase of her illness. And I decided to take a year off from medical school because I wanted to help care for her. She lived, I grew up in Washington, D.C. And it was too hard to be in medical school and take time off and schlep to D.C. to be with her. And so I, I enrolled in the School of Public Health to get an MPH, which was much easier. And um, ultimately, she died uh, in the middle of September anyway, right at the beginning of that school year. But I, um, it was during that year that my sort of interest in population sciences was rekindled. Remember, I had wanted to study semiotics. I was interested in anthropology in college and stuff like that. So I started taking classes in statistics and population health and the history of medicine. And uh, so I, I sort of my interest in the social sciences got rekindled and I knew I needed to get a PhD in something. And for a variety of serendipitous reasons, again, I chose sociology as my PhD, and um, which is not a particularly high status field, 
And, and I went to the University of Pennsylvania to study with a very famous uh, sociologist, a medical sociologist, a woman by the name of Renee Fox, who just died last year. And then I got my PhD there. And I finally, in 1995, at the age of 33, uh, finished my formal education. <laughs> I did my, my residency in internal medicine at, at UPenn. So that's a little a bit of a, you know, the, the biography. And, and actually, I got lucky doing sociology because it was during that period at the University of Pennsylvania that I was first introduced to social networks, which would ultimately change my life. I, you know, was sort of, so, sociologists had innovated in the field of the analysis of networks for 100 years. They were at the forefront. And so it's a very standard part of sociological training, but it was not a very widely studied topic in the early 1990s. It wasn't until the late 1990s when all of a sudden with the emergence of new online media, new data, new computational power, new methods, new questions that uh, the interest in social networks took off. And, um, and I happened to be well positioned to sort of ride that wave because I had had, I had an interest in the topic and, and so on and some training in it. So anyway, that's a bit of a biography. I don't know if any of that is answering your question. Oh, it's interesting to me. I didn't, uh, I've heard you on a lot of podcasts, but I'm, I'm not sure I knew the full backstory of how you combined your various interests. Well, well I, I mean, I, what was also happening in me at the time was that part of the reason I abandoned surgery is that I realized that, well, first of all, I was a young man in a hurry. Like, in other words, in surgery, the, the, the most important thing in surgery is, is often, um, you know, how many, how many procedures have you done before? So if you're a young surgeon, no matter how skilled with your hands you are, or how imaginative you are, really the most important thing in surgery is like, have you, you know, how many of these procedures have you done? Mm-hmm. And so, um, and that didn't suit someone like me quite a part. I was joking earlier about the early hours and everything else and the hierarchy, but also I was, I became very interested in trying, I, I didn't want to kind of address health problems one at a time. To me, it felt like putting your finger in the dike, you know, plugging one hole, I'll fix this patient, then I'll fix this patient, then I'll fix this patient. And I kind of wanted to build dikes, you know, like I wanted to, to improve the health of the public and try to make a difference in enhancing the well-being in our society and health. And so progressively, I became more and more interested in seeing things from a collective perspective, you know, first with the public health training, then with the sociological training, and ultimately that, you know, as you know, that's sort of what I've devoted my research uh, career to. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm hoping that having you on this conversation and, and at least it's part of my attempt to improve public health in the small way that I can as a person with an audience and a platform, knowing that people change their minds in private all the time by reading and listening and they make personal health decisions based on what they believe. And I'm hoping that we'll, we'll talk about vaccination and antiviral drugs and some of the, what, what I think are the interesting ethical questions that we're still, even as the pandemic is, is no longer at the peak that it once was at, uh, questions I think we, we're still wrestling with. And, and hopefully this will be useful to people. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's lots to discuss. I, I, I don't think, um, I think you're, I know you didn't mean it that way, but one reading of one potential reading of the way you expressed it is that, you know, we can spike the football, but 
I think we're not we're not at the beginning of the end even of the pandemic, but I do think we are at the end of the beginning. I mean, I think we are approaching the end of the first sort of the opening act of what this the havoc that this pandemic is going to wreak on our society and on our world. And unfortunately, I think we have more woe uh, ahead of us uh, in various ways. So I am, you know, I remain very concerned about what this virus can do to our species and uh, what it's continuing to do. And, and of course, part of that relates to the persistent inadequacies in our response as a nation, you know, to this once in a century event. So we can talk about that if you're interested. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Just to start, you, you released a book a year ago called Apollo's Arrow, all about COVID. And you've now, I think you've just a few days ago, or, or maybe when this airs, it, it will have come out, have released a, a paperback edition with, it, with a new preface. And I'm just curious. And a, new after, and a new afterword that sort of brings everything up to date. Right. So I'm curious, what, what are the biggest revisions or changes that you feel that you've had to make or, you know, like what, what has changed a year out publishing this, this tome on COVID? I mean, amazingly, very little, candidly. And in, in a way, that's part of the story. You know, when this, when this pandemic struck, people, many people felt like this way we had come to live was so alien and unnatural. You know, look at how we have to live. We're supposed to sequester at home and, and the economy's collapsing and you know, we're supposed to wear masks and do all these nutty things. You know, how can this be? But the really important story to understand about these types of pandemics is that plagues are not new to our species. They're just new to us. Mm-hmm. We think it's crazy, but they're not. Plagues are in the Bible. Plagues are in, um, in the Iliad. One of the oldest works of Western fiction starts with a plague. They're in Shakespeare. They're in Cervantes. They have been a part of the human condition since time immemorial. Actually, not since time immemorial. Since we settled in cities about 8,000 years ago. And since the onset of agriculture 10 to 12,000 years ago. So, you know, we, we this is the plays are an ancient threat and are, are familiar to our species. But we lack, most Americans lack the personal experience of living in a place and in, in a time of plague. and. Um, and so this is why it struck so many people as odd. But the fact of the matter is, is that there, were, there was expertise available from epidemiologists, from historians of medicine, from others who had studied these things to recognize what was happening to us. In many ways, what has happened is unfolding like a script. Furthermore, in addition to the more general understanding of the history of plagues in human experience, there's also a detailed understanding of specifically respiratory pandemics going back at least 300 years and certainly 100 years. And people like me back in January of 2020 were looking at basic data about the virus that was emerging from first China and then Italy and doing certain calculations that made it very clear what was going to happen to us, that uh, this was going to be a serious pandemic, probably a once in a century event. And so when I wrote the book, so what happened is, is at the time, I started paying attention to what was happening in the, in, in the middle of January. I, I had some Chinese co-authors that I had been doing other research with using mobility data based on cell phones in China, studying human social interactions. And, um, and they, we started talking about using our data to potentially study what was happening with the, with the pandemic 
And because of this, I became aware of the fact that on January the 25th, by, by 20, beginning on the 23rd and 24th, but by the 25th, the Chinese government had promulgated regulations that required 930 million people to stay at home. And that really got my attention. You know, like the Chinese government saw in the virus a threat of sufficient magnitude that it basically detonated a social nuclear weapon to stop it. And so I was really paying attention to what was happening in China. And meanwhile, in the United States, it was like la-la land. People were saying, oh, never mind, it'll stay in China, la-la-la, la-la-la. And I was like doing these calculations and looking at what was happening and talking to my colleagues, epidemiologists around the country, and was very worried. And so I started, like by February, I started sending out these little Twitter threads, like Epi 101. You know, the, the, the then president of the United States was making preposterous statements that, uh, you know, this, this, this will go away, it'll go away, it'll go away. There are only five people that are sick, it'll go away. There are only... 50 people that are sick, it'll go away. There are only 500 people that are sick, it'll go away. There are only 5,000 people that are sick, it'll go away. There are only 50,000 people, it'll go away. This was all wrong. And we now know that he had been briefed, but he um, you know, wouldn't listen or wish to lie to the public. And furthermore, just not to make it quite so political, I mean, there were Democratic governors who were equally you know, unwilling to see what was happening, unwilling to level with people, unwilling to take the necessary precautions. So I was getting really alarmed and I started sending out some of these Twitter threads back in February and into March and they started going viral. And that gave me the idea that maybe I should write a book about this. And I spoke to my publisher and they said, sure, we'd we'd love a book from you. And so I sat down on March the 15th approximately to write the book and and I had to deliver it four months later, July the 15th. And then it was edited and sent to manufacturing, and it came out like October 15th. So it was very rapid, much more rapid than I usually uh, uh, do. So so that was, so the book came out in October uh, and reflected the reality through about July or August of 2020. And uh, most of what I described in the book has basically unfolded. The, The book describes how respiratory pandemics work, how plagues work in general, what was known about this virus, how it relates to other coronaviruses. And um, it anticipated that the vaccines would be available in the first quarter of 2021. Now the vaccines were available a few couple of months earlier than that, but it really didn't change the trajectory much. The book, at the time I went to press, there were 120,000 deaths. And I said that ultimately there would be between half a million and a million deaths, uh, which is exactly what's happening. I said that the plague would unfold in three phases, the first phase of which would be the epidemiological and biological impact of the pandemic, and that would last until 2022, and and that is what's happening, and that then we would then enter subsequent phases. So so not a lot has has, uh, been different uh, other than the slightly early arrival of the vaccines, and there are very high efficacy there are, of course, a lot of things that have happened, and I'll shut up in one second. There are a lot of things that have happened. The, uh, the new variants are um, substantially more infectious, like the Delta variant, and unfortunately, somewhat more deadly as well. And this is a problem for us. And there was no way to anticipate that. So I discussed that in the, in the paperback. And I had not expected that our... I talk about this a little bit, like how the virus struck us at a particularly vulnerable moment in terms of the intellectual discourse in our society, how we've been, we're very politically polarized right now, which makes it difficult to talk about anything without it being, 
becoming politicized. We have very high levels of economic inequality at almost century high levels, which tear us apart as well. We, we have a kind of thinning out of our intellectual discourse. We have a mistrust of science, a mistrust of expertise. All of these things are weaknesses in many ways that the virus exploited. And, and I was aware of those things and wrote about them, but, but I didn't really expect it to be quite as bad as it has been, uh, candidly. I mean, we, as a nation, we have really not done anywhere near as well as we could have or should have, in my view, in coping with what is a, you know, a major threat to our, our national well-being. I'll say one more thing and then I'll shut up. Larry Summers, a former Treasury Secretary, and David Cutler, a former colleague of mine at Harvard, published a paper now, I don't know how many months ago, six or 12 months ago, calling this the um, $16 trillion virus. That from the moment this virus entered our species and arrived on our shores, it would cause $16 trillion of damage, $8 trillion in economic damage, and $8 trillion in loss of life, uh, longevity, disability, health problems, and so on. And um, that is a, a catastrophe on the scale of the, of the Great Depression. And I don't think people fully appreciate yet what actually has happened to us. And uh, there's some reasons that the person on the street doesn't quite get it yet. But, I, you know, like I said, I think we're still, the, the virus isn't done with us yet. And the epidemic is, is not over. And eventually our society will return to normal. But it's not going to happen easily or fast. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional therapy done securely online. BetterHelp includes a broad range of expertise, which may not be locally available in many areas. It's also available to clients all over the world. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy, and financial aid is also available to those who need it. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So you can visit betterhelp.com slash Coleman. That's better H-E-L-P. And join over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Special offer for conversations with Coleman listeners. You can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash Coleman. Once again, that's betterhelp.com slash Coleman. So a lot of things to pick up on there. One is something I've mentioned before, which is I remember probably right around the time you started writing your book, March 15th, I remember when the early death rates were coming out of Italy and other places, and we were all trying to figure out just how deadly this thing was. I remember you know, comparing different death rates from different sources. And for the first time in many months, not worrying about whether a source was left wing or right wing, because I don't know if everyone recalls this, but there was actually a very brief period during which, you know, the, the, the 
political polls hadn't decided how we were going to make COVID into a partisan issue. And it really was maybe, I don't know if this lasted even two weeks, but there, there was a time where there just was no sense that one side was going to be the side that minimizes the virus and one side was going to be the, the side that, that catastrophizes it. And it was like a, a, a very small break from the total dysfunction that's caused by partisan bias and political tribalism. And I think you're right to point out how much that has been a central obstacle to us figuring out how to best address this, this pandemic. You know, I mean, I, I've noticed one other change too, which is, and I'm, I'm curious if, if this is, if you agree with this, which is that we no longer, or I no longer really hear people talking about herd immunity as a goal. Like, is that, is that no longer a realistic goal? Is that still, does that still seem attainable? Um, well, no, that is the ultimate, that's the ultimate end game. So first of all, the backup on the polarization issue, sure, yeah. what's amazing to me is we live in a plural democracy. I think that's great. People have all kinds of differences of opinion about all kinds of topics. And we resolve our disagreements by voting. We don't take up arms. We vote. And that's an astonishing, peaceful way of resolving disputes that we have in our society. And, and I also find the differences of opinion interesting, you know, the, to, to uh, most people want a better society. The disagreement uh, comes in how to achieve a better society, what policies to do. Now, sometimes over the last 10 or 20 years, especially fear of having to engage the fact that we have an ideological difference has led many people to wish to suppress the factual difference, factual opinions. In other words, instead of my saying to you, yes, we grant that there is climate change and that it's anthropogenic, because if I grant that, that maybe that'll oblige me to take some action. Instead, I say, well, we don't want to support that research, or I don't believe that research or something. Instead of saying, well, yes, that's what's happening, but we disagree about what to do about it. And so we're going to have to have that conversation you see based on ideology rather than facts. And the left and the right do this for different topics in different ways. So I like the fact that we have this plural democracy, but not everything needs to be politicized. In other words, if you have a, you can signal your party identity by putting a bumper sticker on your car. You don't need to signal your party identity by whether you get a vaccine or not. I mean, that's just foolish. It's not necessary to, to signal your identity by such a pragmatic, what should be really technocratic function. I mean, what's going to happen now is that everyone on the planet, except for hermits that live in the mountains and a very few people who are extremely lucky, everyone on the planet will either be infected with a virus or will be vaccinated. Every single person. And if you're infected with a virus, you have about a 1% chance of dying. It varies with age, of course. We can talk about that, you know, hugely, although some of the new variants are afflicting young people more. So if you get infected with the virus, you have about a 1% chance of dying. If you get a vaccine, you have less than a 1 in a million chance of dying from the vaccine. So it's really a very basic choice. I mean, vaccines are 300 years in the making. We have decades of research on these on vaccines. They're a miracle of modern technology. If people are impressed with iPhones and cars, they should be impressed with vaccines. There's really very limited reason not to get vaccinated. Unless you see vaccination as a, as a way of indicating your 
your party, uh, your political uh, party, whether being vaccinated or unvaccinated, which is, as I said, foolish, in my opinion, to come to see it. Same with so many other things like masking, for example. A mask is not a political symbol. It's just a, a barrier like an umbrella which stops droplets. And uh, you can just see it in a very neutral scientific way if you wish. What is interesting is that certain, many other countries avoided politicizing the pandemic, even though they have very contentious politics, for example, in Portugal. And other countries also politicized the, vac- uh, the, the, the virus, but often in dissimilar ways. For example, in Greece, it's the left wing that opposes vaccination, not the right wing. No. So, you know, these are, these are needlessly suboptimal responses. And in our country, I definitely blame the previous administration, the, the White House, for lack of leadership in our time of need. And I think, and I think they, the, the, the response by President Trump definitely needlessly politicized the virus. And, you know, some right-wing commentators have observed that if Trump had wanted, he could have trumped up, so to speak, the success in developing a vaccine under his watch, right? I mean, they, he, could have, he could have portrayed that as the Trump vaccine, for example. And the irony is that if he had done that, who knows, maybe the left wing, because there is, you know, an anti-vax movement on the far left as well. There always was. You know, maybe they would have we would have had the reverse politics on vaccination. Anyway, the point is, I mean, I actually I actually remember many people worrying that Trump would use the pandemic. People that were worried that Trump was every bit the horrible authoritarian that that he has seemed to be in in certain moments, that he would use this as as the final opportunity to institute the fascism that he's really always wanted to which would have been he, Trump would have been the pro lockdown, pro mask, pro everything, you know, and he, he could have been, be, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, unfortunately he's turned out to be irrationally against many important precautionary measures. Yes. And I also think the, the other thing that has happened in our society, which I, I know you've thought a lot about, you've written about in other domains. I don't know if you've written about this, this issue in this topic with respect to uh, coronavirus is the loss in our society of a capacity for nuance, mm-hmm. right? Everything is you're with me or you're against me. It's, it's black or it's white. It's this way or it's that way, which is dumb. Most adults know that life is complicated. Things are shades of gray. They're, you know, it's not so easy. So it's not like either we wear masks or we don't wear masks or either masks absolutely are the right thing to do. And so who cares what the costs are or masks are absolutely the wrong thing to do because they're impossibly expensive. Well, no. We need to do assessments and figure out, yes, there are benefits of wearing masks, but also their costs. And we need to have an honest conversation about that and decide where and when we're going to wear the masks and so on. And, and with so many public policy topics, you know, our country isn't able to have honest conversations, in my view, about what the issues and stakes are and then settle our disagreements by voting. Instead, we have, we have come, as you alluded to at the beginning, we've come to, to see everything soon see so many things through a tribal lens. And, you know, again, I think this, this has harmed us. And it's, it's not in keeping with our, let's say, with our best traditions. Uh, let's put it that way. Yeah. And I think vaccines is where this is most harmful. You, you look at the political map of who's vaccinated in this country, and it's just, it just tracks left-right clustering like to a T and it's, it's so, it's horrible to think that 
someone's partisan affiliation is, is doing so much work in their decision whether or not to get vaccinated, which should have nothing to do with all of the other sets of issues that the left and the right disagree about. I would agree. There's no reason, as I said, to signal your party identity by whether you get vaccinated. I mean, yeah, I think we could all get vaccinated and still argue about politics. <laughs> so, so I, right. But I, I want to take seriously here the, the, the argument that people who are afraid to get vaccinated make, which is, I, th- I think the primary thing that people who are concerned about getting vaccinated are, are worried about is how quickly the vaccines were rolled out. So can you talk about what, what does it mean that they were rolled out quickly? Why, why shouldn't this be a reason not to get vaccinated? So they're right. The vaccines were produced in record time. But one of the things you need to understand is, is that if you're building a house and the builder says it will take a year, if the builder doubles the manpower on the project and, and money is no object, you could have the house in six months. So there are certain things that with the expenditure of, of uh, you know, lawyers, guns, and money, or as they say in the area, the expenditure of ammunition, you know, with the expenditure of, of manpower and dollars, um, you can achieve faster. First point. Second point, uh, there was a tremendous market demand for the vaccine. So th- this was a rare occasion where the commercial interests were enormous and were known to be enormous right at the outset. So there was a, a great commitment of capital to, uh, you know, to invent these vaccines. And, and, and third, they were built on decades of scientific research that had, uh, remember in 2003, we had the last SARS, the last coronavirus pandemic, which only infected about 7,000 people worldwide and killed about seven or 800 people. And they had started the process of inventing a vaccine for that virus but because there was no commercial interest, because the pandemic petered out for various reasons, they um, never finished it. But we had all that research in the can. People knew the spike protein. They had thought about different platforms, like adenovirus platforms for delivering the vaccine. We have a lot of research on the biology of the virus and on the bio- biology of vaccines. So, you know, it was like, the, like, like for example, like uh, Kennedy's commitment to go to the moon before the end of the century. And it happened even faster than they had expected uh, because huge, I I forgot at its peak, NASA was consuming like 10% of the federal budget or something. And so we did it. And so, you know, in a way, it's a quintessentially American story and we can take pride in it, actually. You know, one of the ironies is, is we're often not very good at addressing social problems, but we typically are very good at addressing technological problems. And here again, look what we did, you know, multiple of these vaccines are developed by American companies and or based on American science, you know, based on American governmental impetuses and, and so on. So, so I would say that it's, it is not ipso facto alarming that the vaccine was developed swiftly. It makes perfect sense based on the state of science and on the commercial interests at stake and on the commitments of money and personnel to accelerate the innovation. So, so no, I'm not worried about the speed. and. Like I said, and now, if you're still hesitant, you, you know, there are hundreds of millions of people that have gone ahead of you. And we're approaching a year where some people have been vaccinated for almost a year now. You know, we have a lot of data about the safety of these vaccines and their efficacy now. 
And so I think people should be invited to revise their mind, you know, change their minds and, and revise their opinions. There's that famous saying, and then I'll shut up. You know, I forgot what British, the British wit said this. You may know who it was. I can't remember right now. And, and the person says, you know, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? <laughs> no, no, I, I, I stick with my original opinion despite new facts because I'm an idiot, you know? Yeah. So, so, you know, I think there's been an updating in our knowledge about the efficacy and safety of these vaccines now that hundreds of millions of people have gotten them. And I think people should take a moment and revise their opinions about the safety and efficacy of these vaccines. And I hope my fellow citizens will take it, not just for their own sake, because I care about everybody in our country, regardless of their political orientation. These are our fellow citizens, but also for the sake of our country, because every additional person getting vaccinated brings us that much faster to um, a release from the epidemic. You also mentioned herd immunity. We can return to that if you want. Yeah, no, I, I do because there, there was a there was an article in the Times. I'm not sure what it was. Sometime in the past month or two, which quoted many scientists seeming to say that herd immunity was no longer. It's no. It no longer looks like a, a realistic goal. Uh, or a realistic end game and and actually the end game is going to look more like you know covid is is with us forever and killing a small number of people every year forever something like yeah, that yeah that's what i wrote that's what i wrote in my book uh mm-hmm. in fact i mean that's exactly what that's what's going to happen and we all knew that was going to happen right from the beginning or at least those of us who know about these things and um the disease is going to become endemic this virus will circulate among us forever, but eventually we will be beyond the epidemic phase of the virus and very few people will, you know, won't be growing. The cases won't be growing. There'll just be a steady low rate of people who die of the virus, just like with measles. You know, we vaccinate most of the people in the country for measles. We still occasionally have a case of measles, but we don't, we don't have measles outbreaks. Remember, measles used to wipe out populations. For example, Native American populations in some cases, we have evidence that 90% of them were wiped out because of measles. So we don't have measles outbreaks like that anymore because most people are vaccinated. We have a few cases that occur. And, and for the coronavirus, one of the reasons it'll be endemic as well is that this disease can also infect our animals. Unlike um, smallpox, which just affected humans, so if we could eradicate it from humans, then it would be eradicated forever, um, this Coronavirus, SARS-2, also can infect our dogs and cats and minks, and, and there's some evidence that it infects you know, other and other mammals. Um, so it's, it's not going to be eradicated. And uh, so it's going to become endemic. Now, the herd immunity thing, uh, that is, in fact, how the first phase I mentioned earlier, the opening act of the pandemic, the biological and epidemiological, see, the, the pandemics will have three phases. The, the initial phase, which is going to last into 2022, when we feel the biological and epidemiological impact of the virus, then the intermediate phase, which will last until 2023-2024, and that is like a tsunami has washed ashore and uh, devastated the countryside, and finally it recedes, but there's a huge mess, right? I mean, all the buildings are destroyed. We need to clean up the roads and rebuild the buildings, and that's what it's going to be like with a tsunami of the virus, that you know, after finally we get beyond, we reach this herd immunity threshold, which I'll come back to in a moment, and we put the biological and epidemiological impact of the virus behind us, now we're going to have to cope with the clinical, psychological, social, and economic aftershocks of the virus, which is going to take some time. 
And then finally, 2023, 2024, we're going to enter the post-pandemic phase, which I think is going to be a little bit of a party, kind of like the roaring 20s of the, of the 21st century, like the roaring 20s of the 20th century. Now, all this, by the way, assumes that we don't get the emergence of new vaccine-evading strains of the virus, which I think there's about a 1% to 10% chance of that happening. And if that happens, that would be really awful for us, and it'll put us back at square one because we're going to have to, again, engage in some kind of lockdown-type measures and wait for the pharmaceutical companies to develop a different kind of booster than that which everyone is discussing right now, uh, booster shots that are customized to new variants of the virus that evaded the previous vaccines that had been available. So those are the phases. The end of the first phase is reached when, when we reach herd immunity. Now, there are two ways to reach herd immunity. So first of all, herd immunity is the idea that a population can be immune to epidemics even if not every individual within the population is immune. For example, if you vaccinate 96% of the population for measles, even if one of the 4% of the people who's not immunized gets infected, you don't get an outbreak because they have no one to spread it to. And that threshold, that 96% number, is the herd immunity threshold. And you should have the intuition that that percentage depends on how infectious the disease is, how intrinsically spreadable it is which is quantified by something known as the R0, the R sub zero, or the basic reproduction number. And that's a, a property of the virus, which is given every case in a non-immune, normally interacting host population, how many new cases do you get next? And for the original Wuhan strain of the virus, that number was three, which is very high. For the Delta variant, that number is six. Each case gives you six new cases. So the Delta variant is much more spreadable, more infectious than the original variant. And you can do a little calculation using a mathematical formula to predict the threshold, the herd immunity threshold. And that formula is R0 minus one divided by R0. So for the original Wuhan strain, it was three minus one divided by three, or two thirds, or 67% of the population would need to have been immune for the epidemic to stop. But it turns out that formula is a simplification. And there's some interesting stuff having to do with networks, which we study in my lab. So actually, for the original strain of the virus, it was about 50% of the public would have to have acquired immunity, either by becoming infected and surviving, or preferably by being vaccinated to stop the epidemic. But with the new Delta variant, unfortunately, that number is much higher. Six minus one divided by six is 83%. So probably we're going to have to have 85 or 90% of the American people and the whole world vaccinated or survive infection in order for the epidemic to stop. And that's when we'll reach the herd immunity threshold. And that's why we're still not done with it yet. I think right now we have 62% of Americans are fully vaccinated, 62% of adults or something like that, which is not enough. Uh, if, if for the sake of argument, 40% of American adults are not vaccinated, Let's say there are 330 million Americans. Let's say we have 200 million Americans over the age of 18. It's actually a bit higher. Let's say 40, uh, let's say of those 200 million Americans, let's say 40% are not vaccinated. 40% uh, of 200 million Americans is, um, is, um, is uh, 80 million Americans. And of those 80 million Americans, um, every one of them will get infected, almost every one, and 1% of them will die. And so that means we've got, let's say, hold on, let me make sure I'm, I'm, I'm doing these calculations on the fly. So let me make sure I do it. 200 million uh, adults of those 40%, let's say 
30% are remain unvaccinated. So 200 million times 30%, that is 60 million unvaccinated adults. Uh, of those, almost all of them will get infected, 60 million adults, and 1% of them will die. So 60 million, 60 million, so maybe 600,000 more Americans will die on our current trajectory. That's a lot more death still ahead of us. Now, it's probably not going to be quite so high, but, you know, we're creeping up every day. More people are dying and we're heading into the winter. So either we'll be vaccinated or we will be. Um, and incidentally, less people misunderstand all these calculations I just did on the fly. We have higher rates of vaccination among elderly people than among middle aged people. And those are the ones most likely to die. So it's not actually going to be one percent of the adults die and so on. But you can see there's a lot of opportunity for more death, whatever the precise number measured in the tens or hundreds of thousands. Yeah. So to that end, I want to talk about vaccine requirements because this is an issue where the, the right answer is not obvious to me under what circumstances you should require someone to be vaccinated. Because So it seems there, there are two separate rationales for requiring someone to get vaccinated in order to have access to, to their job or some kind of public space. One would be a paternalist rationale, which is it's better for, for you to be vaccinated for your own sake. And we're going to apply pressure to you to be vaccinated by saying that you can't come in this restaurant or, or you can't come into work. And then the second separate rationale for a vaccine requirement would be the rationale behind, you know, secondhand smoke, you know, preventing secondhand smoke and, you know, the, the right to swing my fist ends at your face, which is, it's not just for yourself that you're getting vaccinated. It's for the people around you. And I have a question about this second rationale, which is whether it really works in practice. Because yeah, it, it all depends on the actual, the actual facts of the matter about the virus and vaccination. So I'm, I'm fully vaccinated. I assume you're fully vaccinated. Yes, of course. We know that both of us can still get COVID. But we're, we're less likely to contract it because we're vaccinated. And having contracted Given that we contract it, we are much less likely to have severe symptoms, require hospitalization, or die as a result of it. Correct. So the question is... And less likely to transmit it. And less likely to transmit it. Okay, so, that, so that's the key. That's the crux of my question is, if I'm in a cafe with 10 other people, does the fact that those 10 people are vaccinated have implications for me as a fully vaccinated person? Yes. You benefit numerous ways from that, including the fact that it's no joke to get a breakthrough infection anyway. Even though we're, infe- even though we're vaccinated, we don't wish to be infected. I'd rather avoid that if I can. So, for example, I still, if I go to public places indoors, I still wear a mask even though I'm vaccinated because the vaccine is good but not perfect. So other people being vaccinated is another layer of protection for me, which is good. But see, it's not just about the externalities, the, you know, the secondhand smoke or your swinging your hand, your right to swing your hand ends at my face and so on. It's also other ways in which failure to be vaccinated harms other people. For instance, 
people who fail to get vaccinated and become infected fill up our hospitals and deprive access to beds of other people with heart disease and cancer and surgery. We've had many, we've a lot of statistical evidence about this, but also many anecdotes that have hit the news. So the reason the state might require you to be vaccinated is not just out of a paternalistic concern for your well-being, which is the least defensible reason, as you've indicated, mm-hmm. not just out of the direct externality, which is we want you to be vaccinated so that you don't spread the disease to others, just like secondhand smoke. You don't have a right to smoke indoors and impose um, you know, to secondhand smoke on me, but also because when you fail to get vaccinated, you, there's another type of consequence you impose on the rest of us, which is that if you do get sick, because we're not going to deny you access to hospitals, I'm assuming, you fill up a bed that you are now occupying that could have gone to someone who, but for your irresponsible actions, now is being denied access to our healthcare system. So there are many reasons to uh, justify this. Now, I need to set, st- stress that I, I think we should have a kind of um, light force applied, not a heavy-handed force. So I think if you truly are willing to withdraw from society, you know, work at home, be a hunter or a cabinet maker or a psychologist who sees patients remotely or a writer. There are all kinds of things you can do, many people can do from home or otherwise limit their interactions with society. Then I think, you know, okay, we'll let you, we'll, we'll reluctantly honor that desire because we're a plural society and we have to tolerate some people who have beliefs we don't necessarily agree with even beliefs that harm us potentially. But on the other hand, if you wish to participate in society, for many important activities, we're going to require you to be vaccinated. If you want to fly, if you want to go to school, uh, if you wish to work at certain workplaces, you don't have the right to come to my workplace and infect me. Or if I'm a business owner, it's bad for my business. If, uh, If there's an outbreak at my business, especially in the hospitality industry, if there's an outbreak on a cruise ship or in a restaurant or in an airplane, this would have serious consequences for those firms. And they have every right to say, no, we're, we're private industry and we require vaccination for of our employees and of our customers. So, you know, I, I don't see that as out of step with uh, American political traditions. I don't see it as morally incoherent. And it's certainly not, it's, it is certainly epidemiologically rational. So from a public health, political, and moral point of view, I think widespread vaccine mandates are eminently sensible. But I would not, you know, make them 100%. You know, like if someone really doesn't want to do it and is willing to pay the price of their conscience, your conscience cannot impose costs on me. But if you have a conscientious objection to getting a vaccine and are wish and can want to bear the consequences of that decision, then I I think we should allow you to do that, even though it does impose a little extra risk on the rest of us. You know, I think we all kind of have to tolerate some risk because, for example, gun ownership. You know, like I am against the private ownership of weapons, but I recognize I have a minority viewpoint and I have to tolerate that living in a free society where we allow people to own firearms. And I, you know, I can't impose my will on other people, and so I have to tolerate that, you know, so maybe we have to tolerate some people who, you know, don't want to be vaccinated. And, and I guess it's it's also worth reminding people what the status quo was on vaccinations before COVID-19, which is that 
most in in pretty much every state your tri- your children are required to be vaccinated in order to have access to public schools and in some states places like I said right yeah many workplaces as a healthcare worker i had to prove vaccination for for everything hepatitis a hepatitis right. b influenza i had to sh- provide tb tests uh, for colleges you have to have meningitis shots you know for young adults in the military there are mandatory vaccinations Immigrants have to get like 20 or 30 different vaccines are required if you want to be a legal immigrant to our country. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very normal. These are exceedingly safe uh, substances. And it's very, very normal. I'm very worried. And there was some evidence I saw today online that the polarization with respect to vaccination for coronavirus is now spreading to other vaccines. Maybe Mm -hmm. one of the awful legacies of the pandemic will be that the red states will no longer require vaccination for kids to go to school. Mm-hmm. And we're going to see a return of measles, mumps, and rubella outbreaks in, in, in children in, in red states, which is just really regressive, right? I mean, it's like, you know, take your politics somewhere else, right? You don't need to politicize vaccination. You know, you can politicize other things. So, yeah, I'm very worried that this anti-vax sentiment is going to spread. We had a core group on the far left that was anti-vax, even in the status quo, you know, status ex ante, what is it, status quo ex ante, just to say before coronavirus, as you were about to say, every vaccination was required for many, many things. There was a core group of people who opposed it. We tolerated some of them, right? Like we had personal belief exemptions. We had religious exemptions, which we although, tolerated. Although not, not, not even every state has those. I mean, those vary by state. Well, they've been, yeah. because those came to be abused over the last 10 or 15 years, mm-hmm. where people could just flippantly say, I don't want my kids to be vaccinated. And that counted. Mm-hmm. Those those PBEs, personal belief exemptions, have been greatly restricted progressively. Most states, I think probably all of them, still allowed religious objections, which had to be bona fide, by the way. And again, that's an argument that is the same pattern of gun ownership and tolerating. You know, we tolerate like I might not want to allow that. I might say your religion has got nothing to do with you know, we're not going to permit that. You, you, you know, in our society, we're a, a secular society. We, we are not uh, a theocracy. Uh, we don't have a state religion. And so I'm sorry, you know, your religion is not an adequate excuse for not being vaccinated. But no, we don't do that. We say, you know, we're going to tolerate some of that because we're a free society, admirably. So uh, so you're right. We had a small fraction, mostly on the far left, of people who were opposed. But now we have a large group on the far right. And I am really worried that this is going to lead to a subversion of a commitment to vaccination across a host of other vaccines as well, and ultimately lead to many deaths um, as a result, and many economic consequences. It's very hard to run schools, uh, and therefore parents will, you know, if there are outbreaks of measles in southern states in three years, because the measles vaccination rate has dropped below 96%, and it doesn't take much, by the time you get to 94, 92% measles vaccination, you're going to have measles outbreaks, just like in Disney World, in California, five or six years ago, there were those measles outbreaks, which closed the park, which cost hundreds of millions of dollars, which people will lose their jobs. They're, you know, this is going to have big economic consequences, which I hope people will see rationally and therefore make sensible choices. So another question I have about ethics at the intersection of ethics and vaccination has to do with basically the global triage of of who's getting vaccines because in in America we're talking a lot about booster shots and people getting their third vaccine which especially for people in high risk demographic groups seems like a very smart idea 
but there are places in the world where that are, you know, single digit first dose vaccinated. And, um, it seems like to, to some extent there is a, or there can be a zero sum game between someone getting their third dose of a vaccine and someone getting their first dose to, to the extent that the, the world health organization has, I don't know if this is still their position, but they've asked for no third shots until more people have gotten first and second shots around the world. So have you thought about this much? And do do you have a position on, on the global triage of vaccines? Yes. So let me say a couple of things about boosters. First of all, I want to draw a distinction between boosters where you get an additional dose of an existing vaccine developed for existing, the original strain of the virus and boosters that will soon emerge for new strains of the virus. So if we have a specific bespoke booster for the Delta strain or for some subsequent strain of the virus, you should get it, okay? So new boosters come out for these new strains that are customized for the new strains, that is clearly an advantage for you to get. If you're already fully vaccinated and you don't have another risk factor, you're under 65, you don't have a chronic illness, you don't necessarily for your own personal health need to get a repeat injection, a booster of the existing vaccines. If you're older than 65 or do have chronic conditions, it is probably sensible for you, for your own personal point of view, to get an additional booster of the exist, one of the existing vaccines. Incidentally, there's some evidence that it's better for you to get a booster of a different vaccine than you got before. Like if you got Johnson oh, & Johnson before, get a Pfizer now or something like that. Why is that? Uh, because uh, the vaccines are subtly different. And uh, it broadens the range of antibodies that your body might might make against the targets, mm. if, which is ultimately potentially better for you. So there's some evidence for this. Now, but from an individual perspective, therefore, let's say you're my age, you're 59, and you're fully vaccinated, you might not need to get, or your age, uh, Coleman, you might not need to get another third shot of an existing vaccine. But from a public health point of view, we might still want to suggest or even mandate that for the following reason. Because while you, Coleman, if you, the the, the way the vaccines work is, is that when you're initially given the vaccine, your body mounts an immune response against the virus and your antibody levels spike really high. But very naturally, and this was fully expected, those antibody levels decline over time. Typically by six to 12 months, they're undetectable. You can't detect it anymore. And that's normal because your body doesn't make antibodies to every pathogen it has ever seen in its life. That would be inefficient. Your blood would be filled with antibodies against everything you'd ever seen in the past. No, what your body does is it develops something known as memory immunity, where you have a, like an archive of things you've seen. And if you're ever re-exposed to it, those T cells that are in your immune system, they ramp up and they start stimulating B cells to produce antibodies for instance, and there are other types of immunity as well, but just the simplification. So the point is that we fully anticipated that the key thing with respect to immunity from the vaccines was not your antibody levels. It is, can we induce a memory immunity in you so that if you are re-exposed to coronavirus, you quickly ramp up, start producing antibodies and fight off the infection. But here's the thing. After your antibodies have gone down to, let's say, zero, and now you're re-exposed, And you're not, because you're previously vaccinated, you're going to have a mild illness and or survive easily from the infection. Nevertheless, there's a couple of days in there where it takes for your body to ramp up and produce antibodies. 
And during that time, you can be infectious. You can spread the virus to other people. Whereas if you had just been given the booster and your antibody levels were very high, it would shorten the time of infectiousness. So an actor with a public policy perspective, you know, like the president or a public health director, someone who cares about the whole population might suggest or mandate boosters, not so much because they help you, but because they stop infectiousness. They lower the rate of spread of the virus. So that's the one proviso on the story about whether people not in risk groups, that is to say people who aren't elderly or people who aren't chronically ill, why we nevertheless might want to encourage such people who are not at risk to get booster shots of existing uh, vaccines because it does help reduce infectiousness. So that's a little primer on boosters, the different kinds of boosters, how boosters might work from an individual or collective level. Now let's go to the issue of why the international ethics and global trade-offs. I think the United States has a moral obligation to vaccinate the world. It would cost about $50 billion for us to do that, which is peanuts compared to what we're spending trillions of dollars in these, in these packages, first passed under Trump, now also new packages under Biden. And as I said, the hit to our economy is fast. And we, uh, we have a moral obligation, which because we can afford it, because we profess to be global leaders, because we profess to care about human rights and human well-being, and we have a certain moral standing in the world, which, which I like about our country, you know, that we are, we, we do many awful things too, that's true, but mostly I think we're a city on a hill. And at least that's how I like to think about our society. And, uh, and, you know, we're still getting better. There's still things we need to do to get better. But, you know, this is in keeping with my and many people's feelings about our society. Okay, that's the moral argument. We also have an economic argument to vaccinate the world. Because, as we're all seeing, supply chains are all knotted up right now. We're a rich country. We depend on trade. We need our trading partners to be, to be work functional uh, so that we can make money and we can have you know, we can get their goods, we can sell our goods. Uh, we have an economic interest to vaccinate the world. But last, we have an epidemiological interest to vaccinate the world. Because it, to the extent that the virus is circulating in unimmunized or partially immunized countries around the world, they function like petri dishes for the emergence of new worrisome strains of the virus. And those strains will inevitably come to our shores. So we want to vaccinate them so that new strains don't emerge in them and come and kill us. So these are all the reasons, moral, economic, and epidemiological, that in my judgment, we should be vaccinating the world. Now, at the margin, should we take a third shot? At the margin, I believe, although we could do the calculations, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm sure people are doing them, it's probably better for us as a society not to give you, Coleman, a third dose but instead to give it to some random person in Latin America. That's probably better for us, in fact. But we can do the calculation and see. Yeah. So I guess I just have two more questions here before I let you go. One is about public health messaging. This is another interesting question at the intersection of, of ethics and public health, which is, should we always be honest in our public health messaging, especially in situations of uncertainty. Say, you know, like for, for instance, you just said that there's some evidence that 
you should get a booster of a different vaccine. All right, but it seems like the jury is still somewhat out. When we don't yet have the answer, should public health officials convey that uncertainty to the public? They should. I mean, because there, there are many people that believe that the public is, is too dumb no. and public health officials. No, no, I think we need to. No, I, I don't. I refuse to talk down to the American people and think mm-hmm. ill of them. Yes, there's a range of capacities to understand these matters, but I don't think we do ourselves any favors by being dishonest or withholding information. I think the first order of business is to ed- help people understand how the scientific process works. When scientists change their mind, that's science doing what science does. You know, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? Uh, it's, it's theology that is invariant to facts. So as new evidence comes in, people can revise their opinions. For example, at the beginning of the pandemic, many people, myself included, were very worried about surface transmission of the virus, fomites. Remember, we were all cleaning our packages and our Mm -hmm. foods as they came into our house. Nobody does that anymore because we've now figured out that, in fact, fomite transmission from contact with services is an exceedingly rare mechanism for viral transmission. So we no longer recommend this. You know, wearing gloves and all of that stuff is not needed. So that is a way in which we've revised our opinion when new facts come in. That's normal. That's how science works. That doesn't mean that at the beginning when we were encouraging people to do that, we were stupid or wrong. It just means that was the state of knowledge at the time. Now we have new knowledge. We make new recommendations. So I think helping the public to understand how science works is the first step. I think having people who get up in front of the public, speak in a direct and practical way, and and say, here's what I believe. Here is why I believe it. Here's the evidence for my beliefs. And here's my degree of confidence in that statement. And then if if a month from now or later on, you revise your opinion, You say, I previously told you this, but now I'm telling you this. And here's why. We have this new evidence that I used to think this, but I don't think it anymore. And here's my updated confidence in my beliefs about this thing. I think that enhances credibility. I think people who speak that way to the American people gain more confidence. People are more willing to believe you if they feel like you will honestly confront your your history of statements and, uh, and be careful about what you say and your degree of confidence in them. So I think, and and you're right to highlight, and I'll say one more thing and I'll shut up. You're absolutely right to highlight the central importance of public health messaging to pandemic response. It's like fighting a war. I mean, getting your messaging right is part of the battle. Like it's just as important as weaponry. And so this was a very important feature in, uh, and and there's a huge literature on public health, you know, how how to help the public understand, how to clamp down on gossip and misinformation. We have all these crazy conspiracy theories about, about the pandemic. Incidentally, we haven't talked about this, but one of the features of pandemics or, or serious epidemics is the emergence of lies and denial. And you can go back hundreds of years and find examples of this. We have accounts from, you know, a thousand years ago, a pandemic in Europe and, and, and observers saying, you know, people have all these crazy superstitions. Like if you throw pots, from the second floor of your house, it will ward off the plague. Isn't that nuts? Now more people are dying from falling pots than from the plague, this you know, observer wrote, I think a thousand years ago. And uh, we had the same thing happen now where people are saying, oh, inject yourself with bleach or you know, do these uh, crazy things, you know, cover yourself with silver paste and you know, to ward off the coronavirus. These types of quackery always emerge during times of plagues. Uh, Denial always emerges during times of plagues. Mendacity and lies 
emerge during times of plague. And, and so, so it's not new. And clamping down on it and, and dealing forthrightly with misinformation is an essential part of coping with a serious threat like an epidemic. Which brings me to my last question. Uh, and this is, um, I know my podcast has a lot of overlap with the Dark Horse podcast run by Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying. And I think many people have gotten the idea from listening to that show and, and Brett in other, on other shows that ivermectin is a viable alternative or, and perhaps even a wiser alternative than the, the COVID vaccine. Ivermectin, which is no. obviously a, a legitimate drug for use on parasites and, and in other contexts. So can you talk a little bit about that? Speak to the person who believes that. Well, I, I know Brett and Heather. I mean, Heather uh, very kindly reviewed and gave me critical comments on my previous book, Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society. And I, I have a lot of admiration for how Brett and Heather coped with certain challenges in 2016 mm-hmm. and, um, and also their lifelong commitment to, to undergraduate education. They have many admirable qualities. I don't listen to Dark Horse podcasts, so I'm not familiar with what they've been doing lately. But on the ivermectin thing, I, I have not I have not seen any persuasive evidence that ivermectin works. There have been a handful of very suboptimal uh, randomized trials, some of which have suggested some efficacy, but the totality of the evidence is very much against it. There are some large trials right now that preliminary results are emerging and soon complete results will emerge. And I'm quite sure that ivermectin will be shown to be ineffective. I think ivermectin is just like the, you know, the uh, hydroxychloroquine was a year ago people grasping at straws, hoping that there might be some relatively easy to take medicine that might be effective. In any case, I don't understand why someone would be willing to take medicine with known toxicities after they get infected, rather than taking a very safe or medication. To, to be clear, the, the ivermectin is, has generally been advocated as, as a treatment you should take in preparation to get COVID before you get it so that it... Well, that's even worse. Because the toxicity profile of ivermectin is even worse than a vaccine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and let alone the, the slapdash way it's often taken. I've been reading that people are taking uh, veterinary ivermectin and stuff like that. These are nonsensical responses to, um, you know, that's like if I read that if I put vodka in my car, it would improve, you know, would run better than gasoline. You know, I mean, that doesn't, you know, people who know about cars and engines would say, no, you know, that doesn't sound like a good idea to me. And what would I say? Oh, what are those? What do those mechanics say? You know, they're just trying to pull the wool over my eyes. They just want to sell me gasoline, whereas really I can just put moonshine in my car and it'll be just as good. No, they actually know something about how cars work and about internal combustion, and they are rightly informing us that actually moonshine is not as good as gasoline in this engine. And so, I think that is basically the story on, on ivermectin, and I think it's a distraction. You know, I think I think focusing on ivermectin is a distraction from what we really need to be doing, which is trying to help people understand why vaccination is in their interest and in the national interest. And I mean, taking objections seriously, you mentioned the fact that people might have reservations because they, um, well, look, some people are going to have reservations because they have completely wacky, just absurd theories that, that, that there's some metallic components that allow the government to track us in the vaccine. That's absurd. Uh, Some people will have objections because they have really crazy conspiracy theories. Like, you know, there's some vast conspiracy that the pharmaceutical companies want to 
you know, started the epidemic in order to sell us vaccines or something. Keep in mind that no person has to pay for the vaccine. They're free. So it's unclear how, you know, how that was supposed to play out. Uh, but some people have like more what I would consider to be sensible objections. You mentioned one earlier. They're concerned about the speed at which the vaccine has, has been developed. And, and that warrants a sober response. I mean, that's yes, they're right. It was fast. But, you know, we talked about that earlier. Another I would put in this category objection is people saying, well, we don't have enough history. So how can we be sure there aren't long term consequences from the vaccine? You know, you're giving me an, an RNA based vaccine. Uh, you know, gee, I'm worried about, you know, 10 years from now, will I have a problem as a result of that? And that requires also a, a compassionate and factual response. Well, yes, you're right. We don't have the longest person that's ever had this vaccine is coming up on a year, or a year and a few months now. So we don't have five years or 10 years of follow-up. On the other hand, here's what we know about the biology of these things and why we have confidence that it's not, in fact, going to lead to problems five or 10 years from now. And then, you know, you have to understand the person's reservation. So I think this is a more sensible expenditure of a conversational bandwidth is to try to talk to people about, you know, sensible things. I mean, another thing that comes up, which I think is, is, related, is similar to this, is the whole debate about masks in schools. Honestly, I don't know where I come down on this. I just, you know, or the origin of the virus. You know, I think the origin probably still, I believe, was a so-called zoonotic leap, that it started in wild animals and leapt to human beings. But I cannot exclude a lab leak. It could have leaked from a Chinese lab. That's possible. And honestly, I don't have a political dog in this fight. It'll be one or the other. Perhaps one day we will know the answer. But I think we should approach that in a very technocratic, scientific way. I don't think we need to politicize this. It's, we'll, we'll eventually, hopefully, figure it out. Same goes with masks in schools. I think that probably the costs for children who are under eight or nine of wearing masks in school are probably not worth the benefits to those children or their families from the excess transmission coming from the from those populations, if the parents are vaccinated. But I'm not sure. I'm willing to, you know, and different experts are taking different sides of this. And my feeling is very scientific. Well, let's sit down again and sharpen our pencils and do the calculations and try to come to some kind of best estimate about what is wisest, given all the conflicting issues here. These aren't simple matters. And, uh, and same goes with, um, with vaccination and all of these other uh, uh, drugs. I think we can approach this as a in a kind of technocratic way, we, we don't need to allow these things to be needlessly politicized in a way that um, harms us. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a good note to end on. Thank you so much for your time, Nicholas. And it was, it was good to meet you face to face. And I just want to direct my audience to the paperback edition of your book with a new preface and new afterword. That's called Apollo's Arrow, right? Yes. So yeah, the, the profound and enduring impact of coronavirus on the way we live. Yeah. So this has been a really great conversation, Nicholas, and thank you so much for giving me your time. And I, I hope to have you on again, maybe in phase two of COVID or phase three to, to see if your predictions were right once again. Thank you so much, Coleman. Thank you for having me. Good luck. Absolutely. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.